Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for our Lord's teaching on prayer and for the confidence it gives us to come to you, our Father. Uh, we pray that we would understand it. We pray that the desires of our hearts would be ordered by it. And gracious Father, above all, we pray that we would be moved to use this good gift you have given us, to live lives of dependent children, turning to you with all our needs and longings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in our uh, secular society, you may sometimes miss what is obvious, and that is that lots of people pray. Buddhists pray, Hindus pray, Muslims pray, Jews pray, and I'm told that even in foxholes, that in foxholes even atheists pray, but I have no personal confirmation of that. Uh, so prayer is not just a Christian thing. It's still near universal, as it was in the first century when our Lord first taught his disciples how to pray. That is, how to pray as his disciples, those who draw near to the God whom Jesus reveals. And as a near universal thing, prayer, like driving, provides lots of opportunity for people to get it wrong. So Jesus starts his teaching on prayer by contrasting the way his disciples are to pray with the wrong practices of prayer in the world around them, where people can, verse 5 and 6, pray for the wrong reason, Verse six and seven, sorry, verses seven and eight pray to the wrong God, ignorant of the true God. Verses nine to thirteen pray for wrong things. And then verses fourteen to fifteen pray with the wrong heart, the wrong attitude, as people who are not in relationship with the true God by his grace. Now, as you heard, this teaching's part of a larger section where Jesus continues to teach his followers what the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the righteousness of the citizens of the kingdom he preaches, looks like. In this section, the focus is on what we might call religious duties, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting, the religious duties of that society. Now, in our society, these may not play a big role as formal practices, but Jesus' society was a religious society, like many Muslim or Buddhist countries today. And a person's participation in these acts was an important part of establishing their reputation in the community as righteous. In the Jewish situation, as someone who conformed their life to God's covenant with Israel. Now, I'm going to focus on prayer today because it continues to play such a big part of our day-to-day -day Christian lives. But two observations first from verses 1 to 4. The first is this. The big point of this section is clear. Jesus states it at the beginning before illustrating it through the practices of giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What we do, the practice of our religious duties, which for us might be 
church attendance, serving on rosters, and because we're Presbyterians, attending meetings, right? Uh, real Presbyterians would have laughed at that. I just, okay, yes, that's all right, sorry. Right, it, but Jesus is saying that what we do, the practice of our religious duties must be done for God, our Father, not motivated by a desire to impress people done to win their approvals, uh, their, their approval. That's the first thing. The big point's clear. And secondly, for Jesus and his contemporaries, giving to the poor was an aspect of your duty to God. A piety without generosity to the poor was unimaginable for them. And I think we have lost that. You see, today the appeal to give to the poor is made almost exclusively on the horizontal plane, their rights or their need tugging at our heartstrings. The, the appeal is not made, in a sense, on the basis of the vertical relationship, what our God requires. But giving to the poor is what God requires. You see, the poor don't have to prove their worthiness or the extremity of their need. If they're poor, we should know that God expects us to give to them as part of our love for him. And that's important because we can make judgments about the poor. We can think they're not needy or worthy enough and use that to harden our hearts to them and minimise our giving. But you cannot so easily avoid or water down what God expects. And he commands us to give to the poor, to respect him by respecting those made in his image. Our motivation to give should be to please him and not to impress others. In fact, Jesus says it's actually about pleasing him alone. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing is not talking about being ignorant of your own actions, thoughtless or unplanned in your giving to the poor. Not letting your left hand know what your right hand doing is about not publicising, not advertising your giving in contrast to the hypocrites who draw everyone's attention by whatever means they have to what they're doing. You can and should be thoughtful and intentional about your giving. Make the plan, but then keep it between yourself and God. And parents, giving is not to be so secret that you do not teach your children the duty of giving to the poor or modelling that to them, as well as modelling that it's done for God by the way you do it without fanfare or fuss. Of course, as a parent, you don't need to share all your giving, but just a sample as an example. But let's think now about prayer. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So just as you can give with the wrong motive, you can pray with the wrong motive. Most praying in the first century, like most reading, was out loud. Uh, Whether or not people did pray on street corners, not sure. But Jesus is, in a sense, using hyperbole to make his point. The motive in their praying was to impress other people, to improve their position in life by enhancing their reputation in a religious community. They are hypocrites because they are knowing or unknowing play-acting. They're pretending to speak to God while the real audience is people. Jesus' followers, by contrast, have to go into their room and shut the door, must pray in such a way that it's clear that the only audience of our prayers is God and that the only reason we have to pray is to be heard by God. Uh, The room Jesus speaks of was probably a storeroom, the only lockable room in a Palestinian house. That was where a disciple could be alone, unseen with God, where he or she could pray to our Father who is in secret. You see, true prayer is always an act of faith, speaking to God who's in secret, the unseen God, but the God who is in all places, in the hidden places. Jesus assures his followers that their father hears their prayer, sees what happens in the secret place. Praying when no one else knows will not go unnoticed by the living God. He will reward, he will hear and answer our prayers. So Jesus' followers pray to be heard by God. And we look to the reward of our praying from God alone. All the value of our praying, its only motivation is being heard by God. Now, that doesn't rule out public prayer. Jesus prayed in public as well as in private. In Acts, we see that the apostles and other believers often gathered to pray for prayer. But our motive in prayer is to be heard by the living God. We are always praying only to him, not to impress or inform others of our needs or piety. You see, the prayer of the hypocrites is basically an atheistic prayer, praying where it doesn't matter if God is real or not. Their thoughts and desires are all focused on people and on the benefits they can get from people. Now, in a community like ours, that stay remains a danger. So Jesus' teaching here is a reminder that if we want to be safe in praying in public, We actually have to be diligent in praying in private. Our habit should be bringing our needs and our requests to our Father in secret so that when we do pray in public, we know our hearts are looking to him alone, that our prayers flow from a conviction that he is living and active, that he hears and answers prayers that honour him by conforming to the truth that he's revealed about himself. And, of course, there are other ways of being an atheist in prayer. People who advocate prayer because of its effect on you. You pray because of its calming effect or that sense of inner peace it brings. Or those who liken prayer to meditation where its benefit is emptying your mind of the stresses of the day. 
Those are basically atheistic attitudes to prayer. Prayer done where God's involvement, his existence is actually irrelevant. And people who pray for those reasons, well, they have their reward, that calming peace, that's all. And let me say, at least in my experience, people who say, talk about the peaceful effect of praying, are actually out of touch with the reality of the experience of praying. Sometimes it is just exhausting, something that you have to work at that takes energy. You come in desperate and with a lot on your mind and you leave desperate with a lot on your mind but knowing that you have been heard by your God and trusting him to answer. Well, that's my experience. Your experience might be different. Jesus' followers pray to be heard by God our Father. And that's why the prayer Jesus teaches his followers to pray is simple, direct and full of requests. You see, the living God doesn't need flattery or information or direction. But some people pray wrongly because they are ignorant of the true God and are praying to false gods, gods who are dead and so neither see nor hear nor act. So just as the prayers of Jesus' people are to differ from the hypocrites, so they are to differ from those of Gentiles, idolaters. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, the pagans thought that they needed to get their God's attention. Uh, you might remember, if you've read it, 1 Kings 18, uh, where uh, the prophets of Baal have to get very agitated and active to try and get his attention. So pagans would string together the names of God, have long prayers full of flattery of the gods to gain their attention and interest. They were trying, in a sense, to impress by the volume of their devotion. And the pagans thought they needed to inform their gods of the circumstances and what they specifically wanted the gods to do. And so they would lay it out often in great detail. But Jesus' followers pray to the living and true God who knows what we need before we ask him. You see, calling God Father, as Jesus teaches his followers to do, should not make us forgetful of our God's awesome reality. You heard something of God's greatness in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Our God, our Father, knows us through and through. For he made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. Oh, before a word is on our tongue, before we have formulated our request, he knows it. Our Father is almighty and all-knowing. He's of infinite wisdom and power. He's present everywhere and over all. He knows what we need. He knows actually what is 
best for us. And as a good father, we'll give it to us even when it's not what we're asking for. Our prayers are not about informing God of our circumstances as if he didn't know. And they're not about directing God about what he should do for us. Prayers like that dishonour the living God. Our prayers, as we'll see in the Lord's Prayer, are about asking God for help. So when you're praying with others, don't confuse informing people of what's going on with praying to the Almighty God. If people need to be informed, then inform them. Say, I'm about to pray for Aunt Sally, who's sick, right? And then ask God for the help that's needed, that he'd sustain her faith and give her good and wise help. Our prayers are about asking God, bringing our need to him, trusting him to know best how to answer. Now, some will say, if God knows already, why are we asking him? Why pray at all? Well, we are his creatures and his children. And our Father wills that we receive and know his goodness through prayer, through asking him, that we should come to him for what he promises, to receive it from his hand, that we treat him as he is. Our almighty, gracious, loving Father, a person and not an almighty vending machine. You see, prayer is the expression of relationship, a relationship of humble dependence on our Father. It's not about getting what you want out of the universe, just another way of you being in charge, the centre of your world. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that God knows what we need before we ask him. I mean, parents often know what their children need before they ask, but they still want to be asked, don't they? I mean, few parents, when their children come asking for food, are taken by surprise. You know, they go, oh, I have to go out to the shops. They know. But they expect and make their children ask because it strengthens the relationship. The child grows in knowledge of his or her parents' reliability and trustworthiness, and that's very helpful. And asking reinforces the parameters of the relationship, the authority as well as the responsibility of the parent, in this case to ensure a healthy diet and teach self-control. And the child having to ask often makes them value what they are given more. Having to ask is helpful. God wills his children ask him for what he knows they need. And he wills they ask in ways that show they know he is the almighty, all-knowing God who cares for his people. That's right. God's children don't have to pile on the words to get his attention. For Jesus says the living God is known as and can be called upon by his followers as our Father. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, says Jesus, is committed to Jesus' disciples. Those who have responded to Jesus' summons to repent and believe that God's reign has come with him, God's king. We can call him 
Father. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, do you let yourself (coughs) from time to time frequently reflect on the wonder of calling the living, almighty, holy and just God our Father? That's an address that speaks of both his affection and his authority. You see, it speaks of his authority, that uh, God is the source and sustainer of our lives, the one whose word, like first century fathers, rules his household. But his is not the rule of some distant tyrant. He's our father. We can approach him with confidence, knowing he can, we can rely on his interest in us and affection towards us, that we can run to him as a small child to their father. Now, it's hard to find comparisons to bring home the greatness of this privilege. I mean, we're like a speck of dust compared to God's Mount Everest. Oh, compared to his power, we're like just a spark flying up from a fire compared to the sun. And how can we compare his holiness to our sinfulness? There is no comparison. It's light and dark. One excludes the other. I mean, when Isaiah was brought into the presence of the holy God, saw the train of his robe filling the temple, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Yet you and I, ordinary people, trusting the Lord Jesus, believing that he's died for our sins and risen again, we can call this true and living holy God our Father and know the confidence and assurance that address gives. Now, this is a reminder, isn't it? This is a prayer only for believers, those who've been cleansed from their sin by Jesus' blood, those who've been adopted as God's children through faith in Jesus. But it is a prayer for believers, for all believers. Did you notice that? It's a communal prayer. Our Father... We ask for our our daily bread, our debts. Oh, that he would lead us. So, So this prayer that Jesus teaches is not a prayer preoccupied with self, but prayed conscious that we are each of us part of a family of believers where we can bring the needs of our brothers and sisters to God along with our own, where we do if we pray as Jesus teaches us. So let's think now just briefly about the prayer as a whole. Firstly, as I've said, it is direct and simple. And all the requests, and all our requests, six carefully structured requests, the first three looking for God to fulfil his purposes in the world, the next three bringing before God what we need to keep living as his children, as Jesus' followers in the world. And I hope that you'll see that they are comprehensive, that all our longings and all our needs can find a place in this prayer. Now, Jesus doesn't teach us all there is to know about prayer here. He doesn't talk about confession or thankfulness. But know that this prayer ought to be the core of our practice of prayer because it embodies and expresses what 
Jesus has taught. Prayer as looking to the living God for what we need. Prayer that only makes sense where God is, where God is, where God is active in the world to save and keep his people, where he is committed to those who trust the Lord Jesus. You see, these requests tell us that Jesus is teaching his followers a prayer for the poor in spirit, for the desperate and the dependent, those who know the world is not as it should be and that only God, by acting to vindicate his name and bring his kingdom, can set it right and who know that now they depend on him for life, for relationship and for living as a disciple of Jesus and coming to the realisation of their hope. So this prayer is both a model of praying, but it's also that can be a prayer that can be prayed in its own right. We can use these words Jesus gives us as our own. Prayed in its own right, alone and together, because it expresses all that Jesus' people long for and need as we wait now the revealing of the Son in glory. Now, we're going to look at each of the phrases now, and the danger, as ever, is that oh, I'm going to say too much and speak for too long. Uh, that is a very real danger, because this is a prayer that I have prayed now for 40 years. The Lord, in these words, gave me a way back to relating to God as my heavenly Father when in a sense my own words had failed, when I was in a really dry patch spiritually. These are words that you can use as your words. And if you just started as a follower of Jesus, I would commend it to you. Use these words yourself. And then, starting like that, it became the structure of my praying and has been ever since. So let's look at it. Hallowed be your name. The first phrase for us is the hardest because very few of us actually know what hallowed means, do we? Right? But, but hallowed means sanctify. Here we're asking God to sanctify his name, that is, cause people to treat his revelation of himself as holy, distinct, separate. What does that look like? Well, as Ezekiel actually shows us. In Ezekiel, it's up there in the ESV, it says, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, the phrase, the, the, the phrase vindic that the ESV translates vindicate the holiness, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's actually sanctify. Hello. It's exactly the same verb that Jesus teaches us to pray in this first petition of the Lord's Prayer. God here in Ezekiel is saying, I will hallow the holiness of my name. And he goes on in Ezekiel to tell us what that looks like. In Ezekiel 36, God promises to do that, to bring people to know his reality, to show that his name is holy by saving his people and making them a holy people who will do his will from the heart through the new life he gives them by his spirit. And in Ezekiel 38 to 39, God says he will hallow his name, he will show the holiness of his name through defeating the proud 
who would oppress his people. So that's what we're asking God to do in the world when we pray as Jesus teaches us. We're asking him to act, to save and to judge so that people will know that he is the Lord. But of course, we're asking that first for ourselves, aren't we? Not just praying for the world out there. We're asking the Lord to start with us and to sanctify, hallow his name in our hearts. That is, to move us to believe all he says of himself, to move us to rely on his promises and tremble at his warnings and to conform our lives to those promises and warnings so we live as his holy people. And notice, this is the first request, the first desire of Jesus' followers, as it was Jesus' first desire, the honour, the glory of our Father. Jesus died to vindicate the glory of our Father. Your kingdom come. Followers of Jesus long now for the full revelation of the kingdom, the reign of God being preached by Jesus. That kingdom Jesus taught in his parables was growing and spreading now in the world and will one day be revealed in glory with the revealing of the glory of Jesus at his return. So this is a prayer that Jesus would reign now through his word, but especially that our Father would bring the day when our Lord Jesus returns and every knee bows to him. To be a disciple is, yes, to be now living under Jesus' word and praying for that, but also to be always longing for and looking for the future fulfilment of all that God has promised, not to be content with the way the world is now, but to be longing for the establishment of justice and righteousness in the world when its true king, the Lord Jesus, is revealed. It orients us away from this world to the next, the age to come. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there is a sense in which God's will is always done. But there is also a sense that at the moment his will, his righteous and holy law is ignored, rejected and despised and the world is a mess because of that. Jesus' disciples confess that God's will is best for all and we want it perfectly obeyed here as it is in heaven, that the time... We want the time to come when disobedience and rebellion is no more. But again, the granting of this prayer, we want to start with us. You see, when you're praying this, thy will be done, know that you're actually saying like Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Now, in my life, See, this is a prayer for grace to each day, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, that God would so work in us that we would willingly do those things we know he commands us to do and which in our hearts we feel we don't want to do, that we'd be able to love that difficult person at work, stay committed to that difficult spouse, curtail our own freedoms to be there for our needy friends. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
Jesus' first hearers were mainly day labourers. <laughs> they lived on what they got paid that day. Jesus is teaching them that they can look to their father for what they need to sustain their lives and can turn confidently to him again and again. That the almighty God cares for them, that the one who rules the universe can be bothered with what we need each day, doesn't get irritated when we come back to him tomorrow with the same request we made today. He knows we live in bodies and need to be sustained. Praying this prayer, we're acknowledging our dependence on our Father for what we need, our recurring needs, and for all our needs in this uncertain world, whether that's for work or a place to live. But Jesus teaches us to pray for our needs, as Carson says, not our greeds. And this prayer is also a reminder for us who have so much that all we have is from him. And so this is a place to pray that we would use what he's entrusted to us well and that through his generosity to us, we might be the means of providing for others that bring them, that brings them to praise our Father. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, a reminder that this is the prayer for those who are poor in spirit. Believers in Jesus don't pray this prayer because we think we are good or deserve to belong to God's family. Debt's a metaphor for sin. And so here is an opportunity to confess our sin but also to remember that we are in God's family because of his mercy to the undeserving. It's, it's a confession that we need God to keep us in relationship with him by continuing always to ask his grace and kindness. And yet, debt is also a metaphor for sin that reminds us that there's a cost to forgiving, as we are being called here to forgive. A forgiven debt's money for gone, money for gone that you will never see again. A forgiven sin means that we have farewell forever the right to vindication, to exact punishment. And even in the prayer, we're reminded that to rely on grace and mercy is to practice relationships of grace and mercy. You see, it can't be grace for us, but justice for them. Forgiveness for us, but they have to pay the price of their wronging us. And we'll come back to this at verses 14 to 15. And finally, the prayer ends by saying, lead us not into temptation or testing, but deliver us from the evil one. Again, this is an admission of our frailty. Those who are poor in spirit <coughs> have no false confidence in their own strength. They don't think that believing in Jesus has made them spiritual superheroes. They know their weakness and they need to be protected and preserved by their Father on their journey through life to our heavenly goal. Every day we turn to our God to keep us, to be the God of Psalm 103, who has compassion on the frailty of his children. This is a prayer, in fact, that asks for a positive through a negative, that the Lord will continue to lead us in the path of obedience and that with testing he would show us the way of escape. 
And Jesus' followers are conscious that, like Jesus, we are in a spiritual battle. We pray to be delivered from the evil one, confessing that he is too strong for us on our own. But this is a wonderful prayer that, again, reminds you of what's at stake in following Jesus. It's actually resisting the evil one so that you stand at the last day. And it's wonderful because when you're facing what seems overwhelming, when it just seems too hard to be Jesus' follower, whether that's because of your struggle with sexual temptation or with envy or anger, Jesus teaches us that we can turn to our Heavenly Father and he won't rebuke us for our weakness, for our lack of internal resources. He wants us to come and rely on him and know that he can keep and protect us. And at the end of the prayer, Jesus emphasises what he said about forgiveness. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, emphasising this is only a prayer for the poor in spirit, those who are in the family of God by his gracious mercy, not because they've earned it by their good works. You see, to be in God's family is to be forgiven and forgiving. Because God expects his children, as we saw at the end of Matthew 5, to be like him. That's right. To be adopted into God's family is to become like our father, to show, the, to show and to share the family character, desire and attitude. Our father, we know, loves his enemies and does good to them. And he welcomes the spiritually bankrupt and forgives And Jesus is saying you cannot be in his family unless you embrace our Father's way of relating, a way of relating that expresses who he is in himself, gracious and merciful. So to not forgive is to repudiate your Father. So I don't want to be part of the family. It's to despise his character. It's to say that your justice, your honour, matters more than his. Now, people sometimes look at these verses and debate precedence and conditionality. You know, can we only be forgiven if we are first forgiven? Oh, and, and as you come to ask for forgiveness, you start to wonder, have I forgiven? Have I remembered all the sins of others against me that I should forgive? Now, that pathway, let me say, is a pathway to eternal anxiety. This is not about earning forgiveness by forgiving. As Matthew 18 makes clear, where the servant is forgiven first before he refuses to forgive. This is about sharing the family attitude and values, which you must, if you're going to pray our Father, And if you embrace that attitude, if you share the family character, you will forgive the repentant. Now, sometimes we can come to this phrase and know that we're struggling with forgiveness. We've got something against someone and we don't know what to do with it. Now, often that means we're trying to forgive someone who is unrepentant. And that is basically impossible. 
there, forgiveness is not the issue. What you should instead do, well, is be like your father and love your enemy. Matthew 5.44, pray for them. Pray for their repentance, just as you make sure that you are repenting of bitterness and a desire for revenge. In that way, you will show the family likeness by asking for grace, grace for your enemy and grace to love your enemy. Well, the point of this sermon is very straightforward. Be disciples of Jesus in your praying by using the prayer, either as model or as your own words, in your praying. Use this prayer. Bring your desires and needs to your Father as Jesus has taught you with these words or using it as the model to organise your own praying. But it's a great model because it will discipline your heart before God and it will orientate you to his glory and the fulfilment of his purposes in his son every day. It will remind you as a follower of Jesus to make what was first in Jesus' heart, first in your heart this day, the honour of your father, the establishment of his reign, and his will done in your life and the world. You know, to be given this gift and neglect it, it's an inadequate analogy like all my analogies, okay? But here's one. It's a, it's a shock. But to given this gift and neglect it would be like being given the Prime Minister's personal number, right? And then when you had an issue, filling in contact forms on the web of your local member's, you know, web page. You wouldn't do that, would you? So don't be too proud or too lazy to use this prayer. And if you're prayerless, if you're feeling dry, you're sensing distance because of the consciousness of your sin, well, having confessed your sin, use this prayer as a way back, a way back to relationship with the living God who has made himself through his son your father a way back to relying on him and drawing near to him. Use it and teach it. Make disciples of your children by teaching them to pray as Jesus teaches us to pray. And in that you'll be teaching them about God, about the wonder of the work of Jesus, about our privilege as believers. You'll be teaching them the greatest gift of all, that they can draw near to the eternal, almighty, holy God and know he cares for them. Isn't that good? Use it, teach it, honour God by conforming your public praying to this directness and simplicity, making your prayers an expression of the truth about God. But above all, rejoice that in believing in Jesus, in confessing that you're a sinner saved only by his death, you have been adopted as God's child through faith in him. And now you are heard by your heavenly father 
who is the eternal God, that he cares for you and that through his son he bids you come to him with all your needs and longings. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he has made it possible for us to come to know you, to be adopted as your children, to have your Spirit in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We thank you that he has assured us that we now belong to you and that we can come to you. Our gracious God, help us to hear Jesus' teaching and to put it into practice, to be people who pray as disciples of Jesus, who long for your glory, who long for the establishment of Jesus' reign, who want your will done in our world but especially in our lives and who can trust you with all our needs, trust you to keep us, to provide for us and to bring us at the last day to what you have promised us, kept from the evil one, raised to eternal life. Make us prayers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.